Please remain standing and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Let's turn now to our text, which will be Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, 
like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you are familiar with what we call the shorter catechism, uh, questions and answers about the Christian faith. Uh, Many of those questions and answers are very rich, and one of them I've always loved is when it's talking about um, the offices of Christ as our prophet, our priest, and our king. And when it asks, how does Christ execute that that third office, the office of a king, um, the answer starts by saying this, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. In subduing us to himself. It goes on from there, of course. Christ does more than that. He also rules and defends us, and he, he restrains and conquers all of his enemies and our enemies. But that first phrase is very rich and very important. Christ is our king partly in the way he subdues us to himself. It's, it's nice to think about Jesus uh, fighting on our side, right? Yeah, we want Jesus on our team. We're going to pick him to protect us, to fight uh, for us, to lead us in victory. But, of course, if that's to be the case, then what has to happen first? Because there's, there is something in us, in our hearts, that Jesus needs to conquer and subdue. We like to think of Jesus, the conquering king. But if you think about it, Jesus as the conquering king is only good news for you if you have first been conquered by him. If your heart and your life have come under the sway of his rule and his saving power. It's very important. And in Micah chapter 5, we get a glimpse really of both sides of that kingly work of Christ. He's going to defeat Israel's enemies, yes. But he is also going to defeat in Israel whatever he finds there that is in rebellion against God. Whatever he finds there that needs to be corrected, he is going to correct it by his almighty saving power as Israel's king. So let's look at this chapter in in three parts this morning. The first one, verses 1 through 6, is the current crisis and the coming Christ. Uh, Number two will be the righteous remnant, reigning and roaring, verses 7 to 9. And then number three will be sin subdued by a sovereign Savior, verses 10 to 15. So the current crisis and the coming Christ, the righteous remnant, reigning and roaring, and sin subdued by a sovereign Savior. Okay. 
Remember from last time, big theme was how Micah uh, keeps shifting his focus back and forth uh, between the present and the future. The present conflict between Israel and Assyria that he and Judah are living through in the 8th century B.C., but then also looking forward to the more distant final future, the latter days, the age to come, when God's going to judge the world um, and, uh, uh, and uh, he's going to come in judgment and salvation, both for Israel and for the world. Both things, both for Israel and for the world at large. And uh, verse 1 here is looking more at the immediate future, um, primarily. What we're calling the current crisis. When Sennacherib's army, the Assyrian army, is going to come and they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem, it's going to be this major existential threat uh, to the southern kingdom and to the reign of King Hezekiah. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. You remember how uh, when Sennacherib's general, uh, called the, the Rabshakeh, comes up to the city walls in Second Kings and he tries to get the people to surrender to him, to give up, um, he is... Uh, pretty disrespectful towards Hezekiah the king. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, he says, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. And so Hezekiah goes uh, to the prophet Isaiah, and he tells Isaiah there, um, this day, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. That's... That's how this feels to King Hezekiah. It's like he has been struck on the cheek by the Assyrians. Um, And he goes on, he says, Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. And bear that imagery in mind from Hezekiah's response to the situation in 2 Kings. We're going to come back to it. It it, uh, resonates with some things later in this chapter. Uh, Micah says, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And if you think about it, um, they've disrespected not just Israel's king, or Judah's king, uh, er, Judah's earthly judge, King Hezekiah. They've really disrespected Judah's heavenly judge, the Lord, as well, um, with Hezekiah as his representative. So that's the, the current crisis. But in verse 2, once again, Micah turns very quickly... Uh, refocuses his prophetic eyes, so to speak, um, as, he's, as he's done repeatedly, going back and forth in the last couple chapters, to the future again. But then you, you might do a double take and think, wait, is it the future or is it actually the past? See, when you and I think of Bethlehem, well, the first thing that's going to come to mind for us, of course, is going to be the manger scene, right? It's going to be the birth of Jesus But, of course, that's not at all what would have been in the minds of Micah's audience. When Micah's audience heard the word Bethlehem, what were they going to think of? Well, they were going to think of it as the birthplace of David, King David, Hezekiah's great ancestor, right? The founder of his dynasty. And so at the end of the verse, where it says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, Micah is reaching back. He's reaching back to David's roots. And, and really before that, interestingly, uh, we're just finishing up the book of Ruth, right? In the evening sermon series. And what is the setting for the book of Ruth? It's Bethlehem. 
And why is it Bethlehem? Well, it's because the book of Ruth is about the marriage of King David's great-grandparents, Boaz and Ruth. And how God was working generations before his birth in Bethlehem to set up for, to provide for the eventual coming of that greatest of all of Israel's kings. Now what Micah is saying is the same God who raised up David back then from Bethlehem, he's going to do it again. He's going to raise up another great king who is also, like David, going to come from humble, unlikely origins. He did it once, he will do it again. He's going to raise up for himself one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's what God is going to do. And when is this going to happen? How long do we have to wait, the people might ask. We've got this current crisis going on with the Assyrian invasion. What, how long do we have to wait for this great king from Bethlehem? And Micah answers that question in a very interesting way. It's, sort of, it's, it's very symbolic. It's sort of a veiled way. With, the imagery is very rich. He says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And immediately we should remember Hezekiah's lament during the siege of Jerusalem. Children have come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It's like Israel is being pictured as a woman experiencing contraction after contraction, but the labor just isn't progressing. And they're exhausted and they're in terrible pain. And they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's just all of the pain of childbirth without the joy at the end. Of course, this is not the only time in the Bible that childbirth, labor, and delivery are used as a word picture for what it's like for God's people to wait for the final future. By the way, if you're hoping for a Mother's Day theme in the sermon today, here it is, because it's right here in the text. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, though, this is quite profound when you think about labor and delivery, that, that symbolism in the Bible. Childbirth in the Bible is treated as something eschatological. Use that word I haven't used for a while. Um, has to do with the last things. It's a living, vivid symbol for last days, end time realities. You think about Romans chapter 8. This is a huge symbol in Romans 8, how it says the creation, the creation is waiting with eager longing for the final future fulfillment of God's promises. It talks about how the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, Paul says, until now. Until the coming of Christ. And yet, even though he says it's until now, then he goes on and he says there's still yet a future aspect to those labor pains too. Because he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Speaking of the resurrection at Christ's return. For in this hope, Paul says, we were saved. We hope for what we do not see. And so we wait for it with patience. That's what the church is doing now. So we wait through the labor pains for the birth of the new creation. And that is the same thing that Micah is calling Israel to do in the midst of their current crisis. They are living now in between promise and fulfillment. They are living in between the already 
and the not yet of God's saving work. And even though Assyria is going to be defeated for now, that's true, after Assyria is going to come Babylon, after Babylon is going to come Persia, after Persia is going to come Greece, and after Greece is going to come Rome. And this period of being given up to the nations is going to go on and on for how long? Until the time. What time? Well, the time when she who is in labor has given birth. When this ruler comes forth from Bethlehem to be ruler in Israel and and the rest of his brothers return and he stands, it says, and shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord. David, you remember being the great shepherd king. This king, the son of David, likewise is going to be like a shepherd to God's people. Shepherding his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And you can tell that Micah has his eye on that same future, those same, those same latter days that he spoke of in chapter 4. Because of the way that he describes this future where Israel is going to dwell secure, it's that great security, and they're going to be great to the ends of the earth. You remember from last time that theme of the nations flowing in to Jerusalem. And he says, and he shall be their peace. Well, he talked about that in chapter 4 too, right? Remember the um, swords and spears being beaten into plows and garden tools. And so hearing this, Think about what Micah's audience would have visualized when they hear this prophecy. What would they be kind of thinking of as Micah describes all this? Well, they probably would have visualized a king very much like Hezekiah, except bigger and, and better, more powerful than Hezekiah. Um, and in fact, that's not completely wrong because Micah is deliberately inviting them to picture a king uh, like Hezekiah's greater ancestor, David. And, and it's true also, that the person Micah is describing here would truly belong to that same kingly line, the kingly line of David and Hezekiah. But we have the advantage, of course, of looking back on this passage from our New Testament vantage point, that advantage of hindsight. Um, And we can uh, see um, with greater clarity what Micah is getting at here, um, recognizing that this king he is prophesying, is also quite unlike those two men. Unlike David and Hezekiah, right? Because the Lord Jesus, born in Bethlehem, king on the throne over all of God's people and all of creation, in fact, King Jesus is going to do more for God's people than just defend against the immediate threat of siege and conquest. Jerusalem right now is facing uh, down the Assyrian army, But this coming king is going to defend God's people, not just against Assyria. He's going to defend them against everything that Assyria stands for. So as you look at verses 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6 are a little tricky, figuring out how it relates to this coming king from Bethlehem. But uh, it seems one way to approach this would be to, to see it as describing the work of the coming Christ in terms of the current crisis. It's like Micah is viewing the distant future, the work of this coming last day's king, through the lens of the near future uh, conflict with Assyria. And and so in in this sense, the deliverance that God is going to give Jerusalem under Hezekiah is going to be a a preview. It's going to be a picture, a foreshadowing 
of the future and much greater deliverance that God is going to give to his people under this coming king from Bethlehem in the last days. Well, as Micah goes on then, we can continue to keep that sort of prophetic double vision in mind. Think about both the near-term future with Assyria and the long-term future with Christ. Um, As he starts describing next what it's going to be like for God's faithful remnant as they live for a time, it appears, among the nations. In the midst of many peoples. We're on verse 7 now. So you might ask, when, when did this happen? When was it that the remnant of Jacob were, like, were in the midst of many peoples? When were they among the ma- nations, as verse 8 says? What does that correspond to in history? Well, as is so frequently true in the prophets, we can think of actually multiple points of fulfillment, partial fulfillment leading up to a fuller fulfillment. Really already in their present day under Hezekiah, Judah is already one nation among many, surrounded by many peoples. Uh, In a sense, the faithful remnant already in Micah's own time is in this condition to a degree. Um, Eventually, it's going to be even more poignant when Judah goes into exile. And then the faithful remnant at that time will be in the midst of many peoples outside the promised land. Right, out away from home and now scattered among, uh, really in the midst of the peoples. Um, you think, well, then they're going to come back, right? Well, even after the return from exile, though, they're still going to be under foreign control by the great empires um, of history, and they're going to be surrounded by uh, rival people groups. Think of all the run-ins that Ezra and Nehemiah have with the kings around the Promised Land. But when you consider the connection between these verses, 7 through 9, and the king from Bethlehem in the previous section, I think we have to say that if you want to find the ultimate fulfillment of this section, the ultimate fulfillment is really right now. The remnant of Jacob today, those elect exiles, Peter calls us, calls the church. That's who we are. We are these elect exiles dispersed among the nations. Even as we're being gathered in from the nations to the heavenly Mount Zion. See, both these things are true simultaneously. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 complement each other. In chapter 4, you have the gathering of the nations in to the one central point, Jerusalem, in, for the worship of Christ. Here in chapter 5, you have this complementary image that's also true in another sense of God's people being scattered out among the nations. In the midst of many peoples, as long as we're still waiting for Christ's return. See, Christ has come, and yet the world is in labor still. We're still waiting for the new creation. It's that already, not yet, again. And so what is life like for us now? Well, it's analogous to life for the remnant of Judah. While they were waiting for God's promises to come true. This is what God's people are always doing. They are living in the hope and the joy of what God has already done for them and waiting in patient expectation for what God has yet to do. And we're coming now, obviously, to the, to the second big point, which is the righteous remnant 
raining and roaring. And if you're looking at the little bulletin outline, you might think that there's a typo there that I meant to write R-E-I-G-N, raining, uh, but it's not a typo. Uh, Micah gives, in verses 7 to 9, two contrasting word pictures for the impact that God's people are going to have on the world that they live in, the people that they live among. The first one is an image of blessing, the image of rain and dew. They're going to be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Um, Psalm 72 actually describes the Messiah himself in this way when it says, May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Uh, God's people are to be a blessing in the world that we live in. The world that we're scattered in were to be this blessing of dew, of rain from the Lord. Uh, You can think about um, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon a century later where uh, Jeremiah told them to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's a, a, a a wonderful um, uh, way of uh, phrasing the, the way that the New Testament calls God's people to live now in this world as citizens of heaven. If we're really living like that city on a hill from chapter 4 that all the nations are being drawn to, flowing towards, well, then we're going to be living as a blessing to the world where we live. God's people are to be a blessing. We're to be like the rain. But, of course, that's not the whole picture. That's only half of what Micah says here. It's not the only impact of God's people on the world. Uh, Bruce Waltke very helpfully relates this uh, passage to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says there that we, God's people, are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And he says, to one, we're a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance of life. To life, And so, in other words, the church is an influence on the whole world of one kind or another, but what kind of influence depends very much on how each person, how each nation responds to the church's witness. Uh, we recently started our third time through the Chronicles of Narnia with Alice and Evelyn this time. And recently we read the chapter where Mr. Beaver first mentions the name of Aslan to the four children. And Peter and Susan and Lucy all experience this wonderful thrill of joy when they hear that name. They don't know who it is, but they know it's someone wonderful. Edmund feels something very powerful, too. But it's not joy, it's dread and horror. Because he's a very different kind of person at that point in the story. And it's like that with Micah's description here of God's faithful remnant and their impact, our impact, on the world. On the one hand... They're a blessing. They're this refreshing shower of rain. But they're not just raining. They're also roaring. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, treading down, tearing in pieces, their hand lifted up over their adversaries until all their enemies are cut off. And here you might think, for example, of the end of the book of Esther. A remarkable ending to that book where the tables are turned on Haman and all of his cronies around the empire. And, and um, the, the Jews around the empire end up being authorized to destroy on that day all of the enemies who had been intending to destroy them. See, God's faithful remnant is going to enjoy the protection and the power 
of the Lord their King. And as Jesus promised to his disciples, the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against his church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a victorious church because Christ is our head. But as soon as Micah says that, he provides yet again another contrasting counterpoint. In the church, whenever we get excited about victory in Christ, Christ is our conquering king, beating up on all of our enemies, uh, we can get very easily carried away into a triumphalistic mentality that feeds really our arrogance more than our love for Christ and his victory. We can easily get carried away into thinking, Yes, we get to be the lion in this word picture. We get to strut around in the world at the top of the food chain because God is on our side. But that, of course, is to miss a huge part of the picture. That is not how God calls his people to to treat this privilege of being part of Christ's victory. You remember when um, Joshua, in the book of Joshua, meets with that mysterious stranger the night before the battle of Jericho, and he has his sword drawn, the stranger does, and and Joshua goes up and asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer is no. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I think when I preached on that passage, I mentioned uh, Treebeard the end saying, I am on no one's side because no one is on my side. Everybody wants to get God on their side. That's what so much of false religion is all about. It's trying to get divine authorization and protection for our own way of living and thinking, what we're already committed to. And the Lord says, no. The question is not, am I on your side, or how can you get God on your side? The question is, are you on his side? And and the problem for Judah at this moment in their history is that there are a lot of things in their life as a nation, as a community, that weigh quite heavily in the other direction, frankly, that, that do not look like they're on God's side at all. And so before Judah can hope to enjoy the privileges of God being on their side, they first need to be purged of the commitments, the habits, the priorities, the choices, the practices in their lives that are not on God's side. Before they can hope to see God subdue their enemies under them, what is it that they need? They need for God to subdue them to himself. That is the heart of verses 10 to 15. Sin subdued by a sovereign Savior. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. This is referring to the idol, really, of military power. That trust in Israel's military might and equipment The cities, the strongholds, referring to the same kind of thing, their trust in the same kinds of things the rest of the nations around them trust in to give them power, to give them security. He says, I will cut off 
sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. These, these ways of trying to get supernatural insight and supernatural influence through idolatry, through the manipulation of the divine, instead of through humble faith and submission to the power of God himself and humble obedience to his law. I will cut off, it says, your carved images and your pillars. All of this, all this uh, um, formal religious idolatry, which, which really has to do with all of these ways that Israel had absorbed the spirituality and the ways of approaching um, the divine from the culture around them. This man-made religion, they had just been soaked in and absorbed from the other nations around them. And all of, all this, of course, sounds very harsh. This sounds like very bad news for God's people, all this destruction. God's people who had all this corruption, all of this sin in their lives. But then you look a little bit, little bit closer. What do you see? What's the result of all of this destruction, of all of these things they've been trusting in, worshiping? The result is what we like to call Reformation. It's Reformation. You shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. God is going to perform this radical surgery to remove all these things that have been distracting them from their covenant Lord so that all that will remain to them is the Lord himself. And God's anger and wrath are going to come. They're going to come, verse 15 says, on the nations that did not obey. But that implies something else, doesn't it? That implies that for God's people, that anger and that wrath and vengeance, that's not the only option for them. See, for the faithful remnant, this uh, very fierce purging away of all of these other things in Israel's life, of Israel's false confidence and military might and false religion and so on. That is going to mean for them not final judgment and destruction. That purging away of the evil among them is going to mean their salvation. And so it is not bad news at all for them. It is good news. It is good news for you, for God to break your idols down. It is good news for you, for God to remove from your life, even in very painful ways to you, the things that you are loving and trusting instead of him. It is good news for you, for Christ to subdue you to himself. Because it is then, it is when you have come under his rule, that you can know the joy of having him also rule and defend you and restrain and conquer all his and your enemies. Why? Because you belong to him. Because he's redeemed you. Because he's laid down his life for you. Because he's cleansed you from sin by his blood shed on the cross. Because he loves you too much to see you in your sin and your pride and your idolatry and just leave you to it. Whatever you want. No, Christ executes his office as a king by subduing us to himself. 
That is good news for the people of God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that Lord Jesus is not a permissive uh, king who just lets us in and leaves us unchanged. And we do ask, Lord, with uh, soberness and maybe some reluctance, but your Lord, with open hands and open hearts, we ask that you would purge away from our lives the sin that still is so easily entangling us. Uh, Free us, Lord, from those contrary commitments that contradict our confession of our King. And make us wholly yours. Wholly yours. May the Lord Jesus, as he has done already, continue throughout these lives you've called us to, to subdue us to himself. We ask all this in his name. Amen.